Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. As we look at the world we live in, as we look at the overflow of wickedness and evil and rebellion and sin, we're still in a day when God is extending mercy, when God is calling sinners to repent, when the Lord is not directly bringing a judgment upon the earth, but he is still suffering long and pouring out his spirit and offering grace to all people. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Isaiah chapter 63 through 64. Now here's Pastor Brian. So let's jump into Isaiah 63. We're coming right down to the final four chapters of this great prophecy of Isaiah. And so here we're coming once again into the portion of Isaiah that's speaking of a future judgment to come. And so who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. So who is this who comes from Edom? Now, Edom is a land east of Israel. You had Moab, uh, you had Edom, and you had Ammon. And uh, those three nations, they, they sort of blended together. They were distinct, but they had some overlap. But they were located in what is today Jordan. And so we're talking now about the eastern area, and it's from the east that the Lord is going to come when he returns. So I who speak in righteousness, so that's the answer to the question. Who is this who comes from Edom? I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So when the Lord comes back, remember, he's coming to save Israel from their enemies. He's coming to save Jerusalem from the destruction that is pending. He's basically coming to save the world from the curse of sin and and all of those things. But specifically, he's coming to deal with those who have come up against his people, the nation of Israel. So really, this is describing what we have in Revelation chapter 19, where we have the Lord returning at the end of the tribulation period to destroy the beast and the false prophet and the armies that have gathered with them. So this is just another perspective on that event. And so here's a question, verse two. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the wine press? I have trodden the wine press alone, the Lord answering, And from the peoples, no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart. So this is a description of the long-awaited judgment of God 
when the Lord Jesus will come back and he will take vengeance on his enemies. Uh, remember the, the prophecy in chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. We looked at that last time. But remember there, he said that he had come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then it says, and the day of the vengeance of our God. But we pointed out how in the first coming, which that first portion of Isaiah 61 talks about, the Lord's first coming, the spirit of the Lord is upon him to preach the good news to the poor and so forth. That's the passage we saw that Jesus, he quoted when he was in the synagogue in Nazareth. But we pointed out how between the words, the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, we've had now a 2000 year period. And so this is a now a description of what's going to happen when the acceptable year of the Lord passes, the time where God is judging the world directly, where he is extending his mercy to sinners, where he is pleading with people to be reconciled with him. But, but that day will come to an end and then the day of wrath will begin. And so this is that day that the Lord's talking about. And, and also remember, it talks here about his garments being red. And he says that he has uh, trodden the winepress of his wrath alone and uh, the blood of the nations are sprinkled on his garment. And maybe you remember in Revelation chapter 19, when the Lord is returning to the earth on, the, on that white horse, it says that he's clothed in a garment dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. So there is a judgment day. And of course, the Bible has told us about this from the very beginning. And we have a number of examples of judgment that are given to us in the scripture going all the way back to the judgment that came in the garden upon Adam and Eve when they sinned and were cast out of the garden. The judgment that was pronounced upon the serpent that the serpent's head would ultimately be crushed. But then we saw the great judgment that came through the flood in the time of Noah. And then even after the, the world was flooded and repopulated, we see there's a judgment at Babel where the nations are scattered. We see a judgment at Sodom. And as we go on in the story, we come next to the judgment upon Egypt. And point is, all the way through with sometimes long, long periods, intervals between the judgment, we have examples of God judging the world. And all of these are pointing to the ultimate judgment that will come when the Lord Jesus returns. And so as we look at the world we live in, as we look at the, the overflow of wickedness and evil and rebellion and sin, we're still in a day when God is extending mercy, when God is calling sinners to repent, when the Lord is not directly bringing a judgment upon the earth, but he is still suffering long and pouring out his spirit and offering grace to all people. But the Bible says there comes a time when that 
day passes and we transition from the day of grace. We might call it the day of grace. We're in it now. And we pass from the day of grace into the day of the Lord or the day of wrath, the day of judgment. And it's not just a 24-hour period. We know it is a period of about seven years where that's going to occur. That'll, that'll be the final judgment period that will climax with what we're reading right here, the Lord's actual return to the earth. And so, and the year of my redeemed has come. So the day of vengeance is in my heart. The year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation to me and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury and brought down their strength to the earth. So this is that description of the Lord's judgment. But notice in verse five, I looked, but there was no one to help. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold. So we've come across similar phrases here in Isaiah. This is the third time that that something like this has been expressed by the Lord. His marvel that there were no intercessors, that there was no one standing in the gap. So we, looking at these statements, we realize God wants people to stand in the gap. He wants people to pray. He wants his wrath to turn away in a sense, and he wants to pour out his grace and mercy. But sometimes that's connected to people praying. And the Lord has this continued marveling that there isn't somebody who's interceding. And, you know, we are the people, the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus. We are the ones who have that access to the Father. We are the ones who know the Lord. We are the ones who can stand in the gap for our generation. And I pray God would help us to do that, that we would be those who looking around at our world and recognizing that it's ripe for judgment. Oh, it's so ripe for judgment. But at the same time saying, Lord, would you have mercy? And I think of the prophet Habakkuk. God declares to Habakkuk that the judgment is already set. It's already sealed. It's a done deal in a sense. There's no turning back. The judgment will come. But even though that's the case, Habakkuk says to the Lord, he says, revive us in the midst of the years and in wrath, remember mercy. So he prays, even though there is a judgment that is inevitable, Lord, would you revive us even in this time? And and we know that the judgment of the world is inevitable. We know that just as I said, God's judged the world in the past. He's made it very clear in, in scripture that he's gonna judge the world in the future. And yet, although that is set in stone because we know that people are not going to repent, we know the forces of darkness are gonna continue to stir up man's hostility toward the Lord and And they're going to continue to actively engage in resisting and rebelling. So we know that there is a set time for judgment. But what we need to know is that we could also have seasons of mercy as the world journeys toward the final judgment. 
And, and that's something that we can pray about. That's something that we should be asking the Lord to do in our day. And, you know, sometimes as we look at the world and we just see how things are so out of control and there's so much rebellion and sin and evil everywhere, sometimes we just get discouraged. Sometimes we think, you know, you know what, what can be done? I was listening to an interesting discussion on a podcast uh, earlier this afternoon, and uh, it was two men discussing, you know, these, these kinds of things. Like, is the question was, uh, do, do you think, uh, you know, the interview was with a, a historian, evangelical historian who studied the church, but more looking at the church in, say, the 20th century. And so the question that was asked is, from the standpoint of being a historian and the way the world looks today, and not just the way the world looks, but the way the church looks, do you see any possibility of a future outpouring of God's spirit, of a great awakening? And he was comparing the world to the way it was after the Second World War, in the time of the rise of the ministry of Billy Graham and all the amazing things that happened as Christian people came together around the gospel. So the question was, as you look from the historical standpoint at the current moment, does it look hopeful that something like that might occur? And the man said, no, not really. Not from a historian standpoint. Knowing what we know about the past and what it looked like when God poured out his spirit and what things look like today, he said, no, it doesn't really look like it's a recipe for God to pour out his spirit. But then he said this. He said, but I believe in a sovereign God and I believe in a God who does things in his time and in his way. And most of the time when God does something, he surprises everybody. It's the thing that didn't seem like could happen. And so as we look at the current situation, we might be tempted to despair and just think, you know, there's nothing. There's no way there could be any hope or any future or any mercy. We're right there on the precipice of you know, the abyss, and we're, we're about to go into judgment. And maybe so, but maybe not. Maybe God has mercy in store. So the Lord, he wondered that no one was there to intercede. And so we can intercede today and we can look to him and we can ask him to move. And I think that he would have us to do that. So verse seven, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercy, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. So that's the goodness of God right there, that in their affliction, he was afflicted. You know, sometimes when we're going through a difficult time or, you know, a time of affliction, the temptation is to think that God is far away, that God doesn't know what I'm going through or God doesn't understand what I'm going through or God doesn't, he doesn't have any sympathy or empathy. But the reality is, as we're told here, in all their affliction, 
he was afflicted. You know, the Lord knows the things that we go through. And remember, Jesus was afflicted. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And so when we have those seasons of affliction, the one thing that we can be confident of is the Lord knows. He understands, not just from an observational standpoint, like, oh, God sees that. No, yeah, he sees you're going through a rough time. But remember, he came among us and he walked in our shoes, so to speak. And he, as the scripture tells us, he was in all points tested as we are yet without sin. Therefore, we can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain help and and to find mercy in the time of need because in our affliction, he is also afflicted. He knows our plight. And so his presence saved them. His love and his pity redeemed them. But then it says, but they rebelled, verse 10, and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, where is he who brought them up out of the sea? Where is, where the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. As a beast goes down into the valley, the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. So you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. So just an interesting note here. Notice the reference to the Holy Spirit. It says they grieved his Holy Spirit. Then it says that he put his Holy Spirit within them. And then again, the other reference to the Spirit here, the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. And the reason I point that out is because it's not too often in the Old Testament that you find a reference to the Holy Spirit with that terminology being used. The Spirit of the Lord is quite common in the Old Testament, but the Holy Spirit, although I'm not saying the Holy Spirit isn't referenced in the Old Testament, but, but it's, it's fairly rare for those Holy Spirit to, to be directly connected. And so, but here's a place in Isaiah. And of course, in Isaiah's time, no one would have understood really the, the triune nature of God. There, the mystery would have still been very much a blur to the people. You know, the, the Lord who is one, but yet three distinct persons but yet one, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And when we were going back to those messianic passages, you notice there were those, there were those points where the reference was to the Messiah clearly, but he was called Yahweh. He was called the Lord. And so that's just part of that mystery. And so here with the references to the Holy Spirit, we, again, we see Now we can look back with hindsight. We know that there is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who taught us that. Jesus brought the full 
disclosure of the triune nature of God out into the open, where prior to the coming of Jesus, that was, it was indicated in the passages of scripture, but it was not really formulated in such a way that people were able to, you know, understand that that was indeed the case. But now that the Lord has come, that understanding has been made clear. And so as we look back, we think here are these passages where the Holy Spirit is referenced. Remember the first reference to the Spirit is in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and uh, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And so actually there in that very first uh, part of Genesis, you have God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. God created, the Spirit hovered, and the Lord said the word, let there be light. So verse 15 says, look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us. So here we have what is believed here is that we have this remnant of people. So this is, all of this is the future. Just to remind you, as we're, we're gonna see here, you know, references to the temple being destroyed and all of that. But remember the temple was not destroyed for quite some time. So when Isaiah is writing all of these things, these things would have been, in some ways, they would have been so perplexing to people because they would be like, well, wait, what are you talking about? What do you mean Babylon? We're not in Babylon. What you, you're saying we're going to Babylon? And what do you mean the temple? What do, you, what do you mean the destruction of the temple? The house of the Lord is destroyed, all of that. Because again, it was yet a, a long way in the future. And so here, what we have even out further, I think, into the future is the remnant who are going to believe in the Lord Jesus in the future. They're going to be God's people. Maybe they are part of that 144,000. Maybe this is the 144,000. We don't know. But they're going to be Israelites. But notice what it says. Doubtless you are our father. They're speaking to God. Though Abraham is ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us. So there's a people of God who are part of the nation who are not acknowledged by the nation in the larger sense. And so this is that remnant. And as we think about the future, we know from the book of Revelation, we know that he's going to set aside 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And now let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource on Back to Basics. Forgiveness is such an important topic. We live in a world where there's little forgiveness today. Forgiveness, of course, is something that we need to experience amongst ourselves as people. But 
of course, the bigger issue is in our relationship with God. How do we obtain forgiveness? Timothy Keller has written an extraordinary book on the subject of forgiveness called Forgive, Why Should I, and How Can I? Unforgiveness can actually ruin a person's life. And this great book is so helpful in showing us how God has forgiven us and teaching us how we can forgive one another. So that's Timothy Keller, Forgive, Why Should I, and How Can I? Again, this month's resource is a book titled 15 New Testament Words of Life, A New Testament Theology for Real Life by Dr. Nijay Gupta. You can order the book 15 New Testament Words of Life by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I by Timothy Keller. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Isaiah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.